Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're at the theatre and we're talking about Shakespearean deaths and there were a lot of them. We're asking just how realistic were the deaths of all these characters. I'm joined by Catherine Harkup from the UK. Catherine is the author of Death by Shakespeare, where she looks at all of these deaths and considers science, medicine, disease, weaponry, poisons, crimes and punishments, and Elizabethan history. Catherine is a chemist and an author with a track record in literary deaths. She's also written A is for Arsenic, about the poisons featured in Agatha Christie's novels. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, really enjoyed the book. Um, a little gruesome, but let's start with... <laughs> um, well, first of all, why do you find the, 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 the deaths in Shakespeare uh, so interesting? What, what appeals to you about all of those gruesome deaths? Um, I think quite morbidly, I, well, not morbidly, I, I am quite interested in death as a, a subject in general. It is this big unknown that you, everyone will experience that we, we can't know about beforehand. Um, so, you know, many people watch death on, like, uh, TV detective dramas and things like that. Everyone loves a good death, especially when it's murder or, you know, there's some intrigue uh, going on. So Shakespeare has an awful lot of death uh, in his plays, and a lot of them are quite gruesome, and uh, they're all very interesting, very diverse collection of manners of ways to die. Uh, he was very creative, and also... Uh, recording actual historical deaths and uh, using the kind of deaths he would have seen around him during his life. Now, you mentioned there are an awful lot. Are you able to put a number to the number of people who die in Shakespeare's (laughs) writing? It depends how you want to count, really. If you count all of the tens of thousands of people who died in battles that are depicted or mentioned during the plays, then it's a fantastic number. If you go for just named characters, do they have to appear on stage? Can they just appear on stage as a a decapitated head? Or can they get a mention? So it's really difficult to actually pin down a a definite number. But I think it's safe to say that there are hundreds of named characters that die in Shakespeare's um, three dozen plays. So sometimes on stage, sometimes the the death is reported by a character rushing onto the stage to report it. Uh, yes, um, obviously there are some deaths that you don't necessarily want to reproduce in front of an audience, particularly um, if that death is maybe uh, by fire when you're standing in a very flammable building. So, you know, health and safety was limited in Shakespeare in England, but I think they did um, avoid obvious fire hazards. And things like um, Ophelia's death, difficult to drown someone safely and uh, credibly on stage. So these sorts of deaths get reported later. Um, Same thing with hanging, drawing and quartering. It takes time, it's messy, difficult to stage, so you report it afterwards. Makes sense. Now, what do you think, or which is the, the bloodiest play? Oh, easily Titus Andronicus. 
Um, it's got a bit of a reputation. It, it's a, a bloodfest from start to finish. Um, <laughs> it starts off with uh, the death and dismemberment of a, a captive, a captive from war, and it ends with two people being killed, uh, baked into a pie, and being fed to their own mother. Um, and in between, there's lots of other gruesome uh, events as well. So Titus Andronicus is clearly a, a mark above all of the others. Even though they're pretty gruesome, Titus Andronicus wins by a clear margin. So from your, your science background, and obviously also your, your knowledge of history and your research, would you conclude that Shakespeare was mostly realistic in how he killed off characters for someone writing at that time? Uh, for someone writing 400 years ago, some of the deaths are surprisingly accurate, and they tend to be the sort of death that you can imagine he might have witnessed uh, at first hand. So he's very descriptive about the details of stabbing, for example. Uh, things like the rape of Lucretia, where she stabs herself, he goes into quite gruesome detail about how the blood oozes from her breast and there's bubbling, etc. So that's something that he might have witnessed himself. So he's very good on that count. Uh, he, he's less good in other areas. Um, things like poisoning. Um, his poisoning knowledge seems to be pretty uh, non-existent or gathered from dubious sources and hearsay. Um, so it, it depends on the death. But by and large, he is surprisingly accurate um, for the time he was writing. But it is clearly something that he has witnessed as many people at the time would have done so he was describing what he knew uh, to be true and what what happened in some of these events so perhaps you could give us an example where he really gets it wrong where he really gets it wrong um i would say um king john and his guts exploding from poison was <laughs> his poisoned? Uh, his gut burst out. Was it his poisoner? I know it was the poisoner of King John. So the poisoner of King John is described as his guts um, basically exploded because he drank the same poison that he had given to King John. Um, but, but there are many poisons, and they can do a fantastically uh, varied amount of strange things to a human body but making your guts explode is not one of them so that was um spectacularly wrong in a kind of technical sense but he might have been using it as a, a metaphor to say um you know he spilled his guts in that he confessed the truth or he you know he suddenly divulged something so it might not be a literal description but if it is a literal description it's a, a terribly poor one right okay um so at the time um, when Shakespeare was writing, there were all sorts of things going on. So public executions were common. Um, there was also mm -hmm. regular outbreaks of the plague that shut the theatres down. Um, so if, mm -hmm. if he was writing today, probably for the movies or, or Netflix, um, do you think he would kill off so many people? Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> um, we... we I think um, because the deaths that are portrayed in Shakespeare tend to be at the end of you know, a 
pointed object or sword, a, a knife, something like that, we tend to think he's quite gory and quite grisly. And actually, if you think about it, the sort of um, stuff that's on TV at the moment, it's absolutely full of detective dramas and whodunits and things like this, and they all depict death in often quite gruesome manner. So the type of death that he would be writing about would maybe change with the times, but I don't think he would necessarily uh, avoid the subject completely. I think he would love it, don't you, with special effects? I think he would. I think absolutely. There's so much more he he could do, uh, so many opportunities, because he, he was an absolute master of stagecraft, and he... The techno- technological advances since then would have made the possibilities even greater. So several times in the book, you, you talk about how he is a master of stagecraft and he is writing for the actors who um, for have to maybe have to change their clothes quickly or they have to move on from a particular bloody mm-hmm. scene and quickly have to move on to whatever is happening next in the play and he seems to account for all of that in the way he writes with his with his direction and his stagecraft it is incredible i mean one of the best examples in my mind is in julius caesar now everyone knows julius caesar is stabbed multiple times by multiple um assassins so it's going to be a very bloody death and the clothes that all of the actors would have been wearing were the most expensive kind of property that the acting company owned. And washing, you know, you could wash these things, but they were delicate fabrics and the blood would have stained. So you really had to control it. So in Julius Caesar, he has the conspirators gather around, around Caesar and stab him. So you can see how actually having all those people around the main character could shield what's really going on from the audience. So you just got to see a crowd of people, some knives drawn, you know what's going to happen. You can then carefully place a puddle of blood on the floor and you don't have to get too much of it on the costume. And there's a line, uh, stoop, stoop Romans, uh, and dip, dip your hands in the blood up to the elbows. It's really specific where the characters are told to place the blood where it will avoid most of the costumes. And then most of the characters leave and there are two speeches, one after the other, basically giving each actor time to go backstage, clean up and get ready for the next scene so that that person comes back on, takes over, and the other person who's still there dripping in blood can go off and uh, clean himself up. So it's incredibly well-timed, but it doesn't detract from the action of the play. You can happily watch it and not really notice how artfully this has been crafted into the script. Now, you you mentioned King John. Um, Shakespeare's really most famous for his tragedies, but you write a lot about the histories, and they seem to be incredibly Mm -hmm. bloody. Is this because history at that time really was as bloody as that? Um, I think he might have um, you know, upped the ante a little bit in his place that the people were there to be entertained. But by and large, he took his inspiration from real events. So he, for the example of King John, 
the reality of King John's death was he probably died of dysentery, which is quite boring, and no one wants to see that on stage. So there was another theory going about at the time that he was poisoned. So Shakespeare took the more dramatic option, even though it was less historically accurate. But it was a particularly bloody time. People, I mean, kings, princes, noblemen were bumping each other off at an alarming rate to try and get themselves into power. And there were wars and fights. Um, Henry the Sixth, Part One, I think, has 22 stage fights or something. It's a ridiculous number, but it depicted real events, and it was deliberately done to entertain the crowd, who would have loved to have seen sword fights and people dying left, right, and centre. And kings and dukes and. Uh other aristocracy actually participated in battles yes it was a time when your king uh, was expected to lead his men into battle um, and actually his history plays uh, stop I know they don't stop what, Richard III yeah. um, perhaps most uh, well known of the history plays uh, he was the last king to die in battle so you know, it, this was an important moment for the king. You could decide the fate of your whole country, um, you know, depending on whether you fell or were wounded or were captured. So it was important to show bravery and have a potentially noble death. So these kings, they were not there to, you know, they could have a fancy costume and someone in a crown on stage while these fights were going on. They really did go into battle and fight personally and risk their own lives admittedly with better armour and probably heavier, sharper swords, but they were in the thick of it with everyone else. So you must have followed the, um, the development of, of Richard being dug up in a, in a parking lot in Leicester and <laughs> yes. looking at the, the, looks like the sword marks on his body, on his bones. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, it was, uh, multiple deep wounds. I mean, clearly the body had been skeletonized after all that time and any wounds that show up on bone, that's serious. That's a really heavy blow and there were many of those clearly visible on the remains of Richard III. So yeah, it, it was a brutal business. Now, uh, earlier we talked about the accuracy, the realistic, how, how realistic the, the, the killings were. Now, in the book you, you tell us about... Um, one of Shakespeare's sources for medical expertise may have been his son-in-law, a doctor. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yes, uh, Shakespeare's daughter marries a doctor. So if he had any questions about medicines or, you know, what diseases, how they might be treated, things like that, he had a very um, easy source of information. He could just chat to his son-in-law. So it's uh, noticeable that the plays that were written after this marriage, uh, there's more medical detail that is included. And the kind of information that he includes in his play, there are references to all sorts of things from circulation of the blood, which sounds like a really obvious, you know, everyone knows that the blood circulates in the body today. But when Shakespeare was writing, that was new information, that was still a controversial idea. 
um, seems like the debate is to how you treat different diseases. Um, there were two schools of thought. There was Paracelsius and there was the, the Galen uh, method of administering remedies. And he makes jokes about this debate that was going on at the time. So he must have got his information from someone who was in the know because I can't imagine that sort of information would have been that readily available. But fortunately, you know, he clearly had many friends who might have been treated by a doctor himself over the years, and he had his son-in-law just on tap with this information. And in terms of medicine, were there any books available to him that he, he, he would have used for research? There were no kind of textbooks, like um, I'm sure when someone goes off to medical school today, there is a, a lengthy reading list that will include books that are quite comprehensive about anatomy, certain uh, diseases, and you, know, you devour these books. Those sort of compendium books didn't really exist at the time, but there were plenty of people writing tracts and dissertations and treatises about their theories on all sorts of things, from syphilis to the plague, you know, how would it look like, how you could treat it, etc., etc. So the information was more dispersed. Um, it wasn't as accurate as today, but there were sources that he could have read. Uh, speaking of syphilis, um, <laughs> I smiled when you were described or he was describing as the malady of France and I immediately thought of Donald Trump calling coronavirus the Chinese virus um, I had to smile when absolutely you it uh, yeah blaming uh, another nation for the ills that have befallen your own people is nothing new um, all right uh, so you looked at all of these deaths all the way across all of the plays. Mm -hmm. um, what's your favourite Shakespearean death and why? <laughs> um, I think it's got to be the classic exit pursued by a bear because it sounds so ridiculous today and it's become, it's the most famous stage direction perhaps ever written down and it's become famous I think because it sounds so incongruous. Why on earth would a bear suddenly turn up and chase a character off stage only later to devour him. Um, but actually, at the time, in Shakespeare's day, bears were a common sight on the streets of London. Not wild bears, but bears that were baited uh, for so-called entertainment um, by dogs. And they had things like dancing bears on street corners so that people could earn money from them. It was a very different time. Um, and this was considered fun and amusing. So the idea of these chained up birds that occasionally got loose and after all of this torment that they had suffered, I um, imagine it's quite understandable that they would uh, start attacking the people who have been tormenting them over the years. So there were these kind of incidents happening in London at the time. So it would not have been so strange to a Shakespearean audience watching this play for the first time. That uh, stage direction has a different meaning for me now since I, I've lived in Canada for 15 years where there are indeed bears. Um, yes, though I'm told you shouldn't run. That's the worst thing you can do. Yeah, they can, they can outrun you. Um, 
yes, I've, I was camping a few weeks ago. And one of the important things is not to uh, leave your food out. You have to lock your food away in the car at night um, because it's, oh, yeah. it's attractant for bears. So I, I fully respect what Shakespeare was doing there. I'm sure some of those bears are, are also quite wise to the fact that they can see food in a car. <laughs> yes. And had they got the keys, they'd probably be unlocking it. <laughs> yeah, I think they would. Um, just a couple more questions. I'm curious about mm -hmm. uh, your sort of job title in the back of the book, how you describe yourself. Um, I think it was a, as a science communicator. Um, how, yeah. how did you end up with a job like that? Um, I spent many years in a laboratory doing research and I found that I enjoyed talking and describing and demonstrating science far more than I actually liked doing it. So I tried to shift my career more towards the talking about science rather than the doing the science. But um, in whatever I'm doing, whether I be standing in front of an audience and talking to them or writing a book, I'm trying to find interesting ways of putting across some science that you might not have thought about within a context that is interesting and um, informative. So lots of people like Shakespeare, maybe not so many people like chemistry. But if I can get you to read a book about Shakespeare and sneak in some chemistry as well, then um, I call that a win. And who do you like speaking to the most, adults or children? Oh, anyone who wants to listen, really. <laughs> anyone. Um, if, if you uh, say that you're even vaguely interested in science or scientific things, then I can, I can happily chat for ages on any sorts of subjects, from vampires to Shakespeare to poisons to, to whatever. So um, I, I like kids because they ask very left-field questions, things that would never have occurred to an adult, so you really have to think on your feet. Um, but I also like talking to adults because quite often they know an awful lot more about a particular subject than I do, and I get to learn interesting things and stories along the way. People, I've had people come up to me after talks and say, oh, you're talking about strychnine. When I was a child, I was prescribed strychnine because I had pneumonia, and all of these wonderful, wonderful stories that I hear from um, all generations. It's, uh, it's a super job. I really enjoyed the book, so uh, keep it up. Uh, Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, one last question, Catherine, which we ask to all our guests, and that is, what book mm -hmm. or books are you currently reading? Uh, at the moment, I am reading H2O, which is a biography of water by Philip Bell. Uh, Philip Bell, apologies. Okay. Um, yes, and it's a, it's a factual book, so it's all about the cultural, historic, and scientific side of water, and it's fascinating. Um, so, like, it's cultural importance, apart from obviously being essential for life, but... Our cultural importance, things like um, sacred rivers, um, holy water, and the idea of cleansing and baptism, um, things like that. Right, okay, so it's spiritual use. Wow, yeah, that sounds like a good book, actually. Yeah, it, it's a very good read. 
okay smashing well good luck with that one uh, okay that's all we have time for today um, thank you to uh, Catherine Harkup uh, the author of Death by Shakespeare thank you Catherine for joining us thank you very much it was great fun uh, my name's Richard Davis and this has been an Ape Books podcast and we'll see you all again soon <laughs>